Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined remotely by my equally anxious, stressed, refreshing Twitter co-host, Joe Wolfon. How's it going, man? Yeah, I forgot what this was like. This yeah. is uh, just being being glued to Twitter at all hours and waiting for the inevitable bomb to drop. I, it's crazy. I remember, you know, way back when, when we were thinking this was going to be a quiet, boring offseason. Early on, it's proven very much to not be that. Even in a regular year, with a lot of activity, we're used to a situation where everything is still at least a little bit spaced out. Even if you consider like the draft and free agency, it's usually about a week, week and a half apart. The Kawhi trade in 2018 was about two and a half weeks after free agency started. This year, we're looking at a flurry of trades that not even a usual trade deadline week can rival. A day to two days before the friggin' draft, which is then a two days before free agency. Like we once thought it was going to be a quiet off season. It turns out it's going to be the noisiest off season in recent memory and everything condensed into like five days. So it's been a wild ride already. We're going to get to the two or three biggest deals that have gone down so far on this episode, maybe a couple of the minor ones. Before we get to those, I will let our listeners know that as we are recording this, there is a report from Nets beat writer for the New York Daily News, Anthony Puccio, that the Nets and Rockets have an agreed to framework for a James Harden trade. It's not done yet. We don't know the details of that the framework yet. There's a chance that happens while we're recording this and this episode will take a turn. But if that doesn't happen, like I said, this episode's going to focus on the Bucks moves, the Chris Paul trade, maybe some minor, more minor deals like the Covington trade. And then we'll save Harden stuff for when an, an actual Harden trade goes down. All right, we'll fall. Harden stuff notwithstanding, which seems insane to say because in any other, not even a year, in any any other day or week in NBA history, if the Harden trade was this close to being done, we wouldn't be recording a podcast. We would just wait for that to go down. But so much has already happened, we have to. So forget the Harden stuff for now. Chris Paul gets traded to the Phoenix Suns. You wrote about it. Drew Holiday and Bogdan Bogdanovich get traded to the Milwaukee Bucks. I wrote about that. Let's start with the Bucks, not because I wrote about it, but because obviously, while Chris Paul is the best player that's been traded so far, the Bucks, you know, there's the Giannis context and and everything that kind of goes with that. So let's start with the Bucks deals. What do you make of the flurry of activity that brought Drew Holiday and Bogdan Bogdanovich to Milwaukee and shipped out Eric Bledsoe, George Hill, Dante DiVincenzo, Ursan Ilyasova, DJ Wilson, and Five first round picks, three first rounders, two pick swaps. Talk to me. I mean, I think you could say that this was necessary. Uh, like this is essentially, you can quibble about the price for Drew, which we can get there, I guess, in a minute. But th- this is basically what we've been saying for the last year that the Bucks need to do, right? And one of the picks they send out is the Indiana pick that they got in the Malcolm Brogdon sign-in trade. So, you know, whether they had a plan for that pick all along, uh, they they did wind up using it in a deal that makes the team better. I think maybe they overpaid for a guy in Holiday who isn't an all-star, is 30 years old, and only has one year left on his deal. I don't even know if you could say maybe. I mean, they did. They overpaid. But in a way, I think that it was a necessary overpay. You can talk about the opportunity cost and whether there's another player they could have targeted instead. But I think, you know, this team is undeniably better built for the playoffs than it was yesterday. And to a certain extent, that's all that really matters, right? And obviously there's all this noise now that the Bucks fully expect Giannis to lock in. And I don't know whether that means he signs with Supermax this offseason or whether they're just wholly confident that he's going to re-up next year when he becomes a free agent. But that's all that matters to them right now is making sure that they can keep him around long-term. And so if these moves help them do that, then good on them. This is a good offseason for them. But if you want to get into the nitty-gritty, look, what's interesting about those picks, the Indiana pick is going out this year, and in a weird way, that kind of benefits the Bucks because after making the... Bogdanovich sign and trade they're hard capped at the apron and they're looking at having something like 15 million dollars to fill out seven roster spots and 
the space that a first round pick would take up uh, would make it really difficult for them to fill out the rest of that roster. So it's almost not even a big deal, I think, for them to get off of that pick and instead try and fill out the back end of that roster with there, there's actually some like conflicting reporting about whether they got two second round picks back in that deal or just one. Uh, I've seen some people say they got only the number 60 pick, which was initially their own pick. And it's basically, you know, a non-entity. It's the last pick in the draft. But that's important because when it comes to second round picks, they essentially count at like what their actual salary is against the cap. But if you sign an undrafted rookie, they essentially count at the veterans minimum, uh, which for players with at least two years of experience, I think is 1.6 million, which is about twice as much as uh, a second round draft pick would count against their cap. So getting that pick is actually really important, assuming that they can get somebody who's actually going to be part of their rotation, because uh, that's the big challenge facing the team right now, right? Is they have what looks to me like a really strong starting five in Holiday, Bogdanovich, Middleton, Giannis, Brooke Lopez, arguably the best starting five in the league. Potentially then, on both ends of the court, to be honest. That's that's a phenomenal starting five. Yeah. Um, the only the only two other players they have under contract are Tanasi Antetokounmpo and Justin James, who's like a little used, you know, fringe rotation piece that came back from the Kings in the sign and trade. So yeah, they, they have five NBA players under contract right now. Yeah. So they, they have to completely, you know, build a bench with essentially only minimum deals. So um, that's going to be really difficult. I think it's pretty clear, like depth is sort of a, an underrated part of what has made them this regular season behemoth the last couple of years. And as much as this starting lineup, as I said, is way better suited to win in the playoffs, I think I think they might be a worse regular season team just because, you know, their depth is going to be so depleted. But at the same yeah. time, like... <laughs> it's a blessing in disguise because yeah. Mike Budenholzer actually has to... He has no choice but to lean on his stars the way contending teams are supposed to. <laughs> You'd think so, but yeah. I guess we'll have to wait and yeah. see. Um, but yeah, I do think that's like an interesting facet to this is like, uh, okay... <laughs> is literally having no depth, like a bench just made up entirely of minimum guys and like second round draft picks. Is that enough for Mike Budenholzer to finally lean heavily on his starters in a playoff series? We will see. Well, I agree that they are definitely better equipped for the postseason now. The fact of the matter is, this is still going to be a very thin team lacking depth in a condensed season it probably doesn't matter in the end because as long as they're healthy going into the playoffs, it will be hard for any team to match their five best and obviously their best player in general being the literal MVP. But I do think there's some concern there. And I'll also say these assumptions, whatever you want to call them, and from reputable people, you know, like Mark Stein was one of the people saying that he, there's been chatter that people think the Bucks already know Giannis is going to sign the Supermax this year. I'm skeptical because... The way I see it is if the Bucks had assurances that Giannis is going to remain in Milwaukee long-term and thereby they have an assurance that their window of championship contention is prolonged for the foreseeable future, then why would they sacrifice so much of their future flexibility and future draft capital in an overpay for a potential short-term rental in Drew Holiday. And okay, I know you mentioned even off-air when we were talking yesterday, you know, it's possible an extension with Holiday could already be in the works, but still that room, like that's still a lot to give up. Even if you have an extension in the works with Holiday, that's still way too much to give up to lock up a non-all-star into his mid-30s if you already know you have Giannis in the bank anyway. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't make sense to me that this would be their reaction to knowing Giannis is staying. Like, oh, we know we're going to have Giannis? No, I think that- it's more more that they think that Giannis inking a long-term deal is contingent on them getting, right. you know, whether Holiday was the specific player they had to get in order to lock that in as a certainty or whether it was just a player of right, Holiday's which- caliber, then like I don't necessarily think that they had this verbal agreement in place absent any major roster upgrades. Well, even if you take that into account, I still think as improved as the Bucks are, it makes absolutely zero sense for Giannis Antetokounmpo to sign that extension 
this year. For a bunch of reasons we've talked about, obviously, over the last countless number of months, there is no incentive for him to sign before the season starts. He risks literally zero cents by waiting, like in in dollars and cents, he risks zero. There's no financial ramifications for him waiting until the contract expires to sign that extension. He's a 25-year-old two-time reigning MVP. No injury or catastrophe is going to take that offer off the table from Milwaukee's perspective. So the Supermax will be there. It will be the same amount. Like he's not losing money on it if he waits a year. The only thing signing now does, and it's a negative, it locks him in before he can see what the landscape looks like after the season. And again, I fully respect that the Bucks did get better. They made win now moves. They're trying to appease him. Fair enough. But the fact of the matter is like, first of all, as any good team who's come up short knows, and as the Bucks know themselves being a 60-win team or the equivalent of a 60-win team the last couple of years and falling short of even making the finals, their short-term success, their success this season, obviously a title is not guaranteed. And if they fall short again, which I mean, statistically speaking, they probably will. How confident should a superstar free agent really be in the long-term outlook of a franchise that now lacks draft capital, but is locked into, even if Holiday does sign, a core of Middleton, Holiday, Bogdanovich, and Lopez? Well, and in dealing to Vincenzo, they also surrendered like their last piece of young talent, Dangle and Trade Talks. I'm not saying that's a bad supporting cast, but I'm just saying in terms of like superstar free agents, that's not quite the supporting cast that usually gets it done. And so the way I see it is like, if you're Giannis, maybe you play out the season, it goes swimmingly and you think, you know what, this is where I want to be. Like, I I don't want to leave. But again, I just don't see any advantage to him signing that right now when this is going to be a new look team lacking depth in a condensed season with a coach who has repeatedly come up short in the playoffs. Why not just let it play out and see what this team has to offer and also survey the landscape of the league before you make that decision? And I know he could always force his way out later, but still, contractually, why commit the next half decade of your career to this team before you have to? Given everything I just said, that you'd be locking into a team where your core is essentially locked up as Middleton, Bogdanovich, Lopez, maybe Holiday, and no real other avenues to to get better. Like, is that is that good enough for you to say, you know what, don't even want to see what the league looks like six months from now? Sign me up for the next five or six years. No, I would say no. I don't really see the benefit of him doing it a year before he has to. But, uh, you know, to, to your point about the lack of draft capital, I think it's worth noting that aside from the 2021st that they're giving up that was coming via Indiana, they're actually not sending out any other first rounders until 2025. The, the first swap rights happened in 2024 and then swap rights again in 2026. The first rounders that they're sending out right are in 2025 and 2027. So they actually will have an opportunity in the short term to continue to add potentially young talent to this group that they have. I think that actually is really interesting because obviously, well, not obviously, but reports are that it was the Pelicans that pushed to have that to have those draft picks moved back out further into the future which makes sense for the Pelicans. I mean, that's taking a very long view for them because obviously if Giannis leaves, if this whole thing blows up, those picks could wind up being really, really good and the swaps could wind up being really valuable as well. At the same time, even if Giannis does extend, by 2025, Brooke Lopez, I don't think is going to be an impact player anymore. Like Drew Holiday is going to be 35 at that point. Like this roster is not very young. So even if Giannis does lock in, like there's no guarantee that the Bucs are going to be a particularly good team by 2025. By 2027, his next contract, if he does sign that Supermax extension, will have already expired. So those picks are far enough out, I think, that the Pelicans can say. Because if they'd gotten three first rounders essentially in the next five years, and then Giannis had re-signed, like those picks were all going to be crappy first round picks you know, like between 25th and 30th overall. But this gives them a chance to really get like some super high picks in the draft. But I think I think that pushing them that far out actually works out nicely for both sides. Because for the Bucks, like they're focused on the next few years. For John Horst, like 
he doesn't know whether he's even going to be the Bucks GM in 2025 or 2027. So like he can kind of look at this like, well, if this blows up, that's going to be somebody else's problem. And then if it all goes to hell, if Holiday leaves, if Giannis leaves, then I think they could sort of turn around, try and trade Middleton and use what would be like a three-year window when they do have their own picks to tank and actually rebuild to the point that the picks they'd be giving up in 2025 and 2027 wouldn't actually be that bad. And again, in a vacuum, like I get the fact that the, the Bucks got better and their only concern is the here and now. Absolutely. Especially when, you know, the future of your generational superstar talent hinges on it. I'm more so skeptical just of all the talk that this like automatically means that they've done enough to now convince Giannis to sign the extension now. Like I, I still don't think there was any reason for him to do that. Like, it's just, it's a complete no-win situation from him. It does seem like Giannis is very hung up on this idea of forging his own path and, you know, just being a different type of superstar and really wanting to sort of go all in on loyalty and not be the kind of player who bails on his franchise. Like, that, that to me has sort of been his attitude, at least as we understand it. And I'm not saying that necessarily means he's actually going to sign the Supermax. I, I just don't think from a career management perspective that that would be a smart thing for him to do. But I, I do give the Bucks credit for taking these big swings, for upgrading the roster. And look, I think they're at the least co-favorites with the Lakers for next year to me. What do you think about that? Um, nah, no, no, this, this Bucks team is not winning a championship. (laughs) I mean, had they, had they traded for Chris Paul? Yes. I would rather have, look, I like, I love holiday and Bogdanovich. The fact that they weren't apparently willing to engage on Chris Paul, but were willing to give up control of five picks for holiday. Even if you want to include it, I know people were mentioning they wouldn't have been able to pull off the Bogdanovich trade. I don't care. You get Chris Paul. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't actually know whether I, I I might rather have both those guys than than just Chris Paul. Given I know how good CP was last year, but like, man, he's going to be thirty six by the end of next season, and he also just had an uncharacteristically durable, healthy season that I don't think that you can necessarily bank on happening again. I don't know that I would necessarily just take Chris Paul over both Holiday and Bogdanovich. I think I most certainly would. In the yeah, and, over, and over the really long fair. haul, over the long haul, I agree no. Like o- over the course of a long regular season, sure, I think you sacrifice some wins going from the, the two guys to Chris Paul. In a playoff setting, I think you're better off having Chris Paul there as opposed to Drew Holiday and Bogdan Bogdanovich. I, I don't disagree with that. I do think and we this kind of takes us back to you know, how confident the Bucks actually are that Giannis is going to be there long-term. I, I do think if they think that he's going to be back, that he's going to re-sign for another five years, they can afford to take more of a long view. And if they are taking more of a long view, then yeah, getting a 28-year-old in Bogdanovich and a 30-year-old in Drew Holiday makes more sense than going all in for a two-year window with an aging Chris Paul. I, I do think, you know, to your point about what makes them more dangerous in a playoff setting, Look, we, like, we know what they've been lacking and what they need, right? Like they need an initiator, somebody to organize their offense, somebody who can create for them in the half court when teams are loading up on Giannis and all they can really see fit to do is to keep running him into that wall over and over again. And I think Holiday and Bogdanovich alleviate that to a certain extent, but definitely not to the extent that somebody like Chris Paul would, right? Because those guys are pretty good off the dribble creators but like not great you know what i mean like they're they're maybe like slightly above average as far as being self creators and playmakers for others and as spot up shooters bogdanovich is actually quite good as a spot up shooter holiday is basically average i think he was at 36% last year so that's okay but I think as far as what Chris Paul could have given them as a shooter and as a playmaker, that definitely would have been preferable, I think, in a playoff series. But I do think, you know, you sort of have to look at the whole picture here. And I think zooming out, it's totally defensible for them to have said, 
we'd rather have Drew and and Bogdan than these two years of Chris Paul. And and it's also totally possible that Giannis had some say in that. And that for him, he's thinking, okay, I want to re-sign here. But if I'm going to do that, I want to know that like there's going to be somebody, a co-star that I'm going to be able to play with for the five years, you know, for the life of my next contract. And Chris Paul wasn't going to be that guy. Yeah, I think that's a good point about Giannis's input. Because one thing I've been thinking over the last however long since these trades went down, 16 hours, whatever the hell it is, is if the Bucks were willing to be this desperate in their attempts to keep Giannis happy, as they should be, they were desperate enough to give up control of five first-round picks for Drew Holiday and to go get Bogdan Bogdanovich. All good. But how can you be that desperate to improve and to keep Giannis happy and not make the obvious decision that should have been made the second your season came to a miserable end, and that was fire Mike Budenholzer? And so why I think it's a good point that you brought up Giannis's input is because there was, you know, remember the talk at the time was that Giannis was actually loyal to Mike Budenholzer and, and maybe that had something to do. I, I would assume, not even assume, I could almost guarantee that the Bucks would have gotten Giannis's input on the decision to fire or keep Mike Budenholzer. And so maybe it just boils down to that, that it Giannis has had input on all this stuff. And, you know, look, if a guy wants to be a loyal loser, all the power to him. <laughs> Cash. <laughs> Are we going to do this, man? No, I said I, what I said. Look, I also been, you know, outspoken about the fact that I, I think it would just be a, a blunder, a career mistake. As far as just like sort of taking ownership and, and steering the direction of his career for Giannis to unnecessarily lock in before he needs to. And I think there's something to be said for the fact that, you know, you call it loyalty, like maybe it's that. I think you could also just say that at least right now, and maybe this will change when, you know, Giannis turns 30 and if he still hasn't won a championship at that point and like sort of sees his window to do so closing, then he will change his approach because that has happened for a lot of these players, right? When they're 25 years old, it's easy to say, I'm loyal. I want to be a buck for life because KG you have your in Minnesota, career, man. You have your whole career ahead of you and you just think that you're going to have opportunity after opportunity and like that eventually it's going to happen for you. And then you come to a point where, you know, it, it hasn't happened. You're at a crossroads and that's when you sort of take charge and are like, okay, I need to make a change. And the fact is like, you know, Giannis could sign for another five years and still be more or less in his prime by the time he's off of that next contract. And at that point he can maybe assess things and make a decision. But I think for now, he is maybe just a little bit too timid and like doesn't want to be the guy who's ruffling too many feathers and sticking his nose in and saying, no, you have to fire Mike Budenholzer. No, you have to go and trade for Chris Paul. You know, like, I think it's more that he doesn't want to be the type of superstar, I think, that is seen as being like a string puller. And like I said, if five years pass and he's still on the Bucks and he still hasn't won a championship and he's not getting any closer, then I think undoubtedly that will change. But for now... I'm not going to say like it's the right or wrong thing, but I can kind of understand him being his age and presumably, you know, having a ton of self-belief and believing that he with the current Bucks roster can absolutely go out and win a championship in the next three, four five years. I, I think that's perfectly acceptable too. And I'm not going to call him a loser for it. <laughs> hey, I called him a loyal loser. I said, if he wants to be a loyal loser, that's fine. Obviously on a serious note, Whatever a player wants to do is what they want to do and all the power to them. Like, I don't think Giannis is this type of player, but if a player was just like, you know what, I'm comfortable living in one place. I'm the type of player that's not going to get traded unless I want to. Um, so I could be confident. I just get to stick here forever. I, my family's settled here. You know, I want to compete, but structure and stability is more important to me. I wouldn't judge that, like to each their own. Giannis does not strike me as a kind of guy that the competitive fires don't burn in though. And that's why I said, you know, if he, if he wants to go the route that you're talking about, where he wants to be seen as this loyal guy and this different kind of superstar, then fine. Like enjoy being a loyal loser year after year. There are five weeks until the season begins. One word answer. Has Giannis signed the Supermax when the season tips off? No. Agreed. <laughs> What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. 
And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show. Okay, before we go, we have to talk about the fact that Chris Freak and Paul got traded, because we just, again, just to show you how batshit insane this week has already been, Chris Paul got traded about 24 hours before we recorded this podcast, and we went on for 30 minutes before talking about the trade. The Suns turned Ricky Rubio, Kelly Oubre, and a protected 2022 first rounder into Chris Paul. Great trade, I think. I can kind of understand why, you know, there might be some reticence uh, just because Chris Paul's age, he doesn't really fit their timeline. But as I wrote about, I, I really think that this is an olive branch to Devin Booker, who has never made the playoffs before. And I think certainly early in his career, you could say part of that was on him. Like he hadn't elevated himself to that superstar strat- stratosphere where he was the kind of guy who you absolutely could build around and who deserved to have, you know, a playoff caliber supporting cast. And um, I-, I think that he's absolutely raised his game to that point where it's like, okay, like we, we can make this kind of a move and get serious about being a competitive team. And I think like the acquisition cost to me was not super high and the opportunity cost was not super high either. And I think that is ultimately what really sold me on the deal because I like Ubre. I think he's a nice player, but they went eight and zero in the bubble without him. And I think it became pretty clear that their three and four of the future is Mikel Bridges and Cam Johnson. And yeah, it would have been nice to have Ubre as sort of your sixth man, you know, a wing coming off of the bench who gives you some defensive versatility and he's a really good cutter and can do some stuff with the ball in his hands. Like he's a nice piece, but I don't think he was necessarily going to be a really important part of their future anyway. The pick, yeah, I mean, that could be a valuable pick, but it's top 12 protected. And I think the Suns probably think that they're going to be a playoff team two years from now. And so it's not even going to be a lottery pick necessarily. And for that, you know, they upgrade the point guard spot from Ricky Rubio to Chris Paul, who, if he is anything close to the player he was last year, is still going to be, you know, if not an all NBA second team type of player, at least an all-star caliber player who is just bringing a a level of professionalism, intelligence, and leadership to this team that it hasn't had since Steve Nash departed. And I also think just like as an on-court fit, I I struggle to come up with somebody who would be a better fit, I think, in the backcourt alongside Devin Booker. And running pick and rolls with DeAndre Ayton. Yeah. Good God. We mentioned this last time when we were sort of talking about this rumor, but I actually think the supporting cast in Phoenix is a lot stronger than the one that Chris Paul played with in OKC. I think there's more shooting. I think Ayton is a way better finisher on the, you know, in the pick and roll than Steven Adams is. And Devin Booker is a more talented, you know, co-lead playmaker than Shea Gilgis Alexander is. And I'm imagining... And they might have Gallo anyway. (laughs) the, the, The order of operations, it could have been such that they waited to consummate this trade until the free agent moratorium was lifted. That would have allowed them to potentially open up and use about 17 million in space. But instead, they did the trade right away, which means that they're basically going to operate as an over-the-cap team, which means that they actually only have access to their exceptions. And I don't think they're going to be able to get Gallo at the mid-level. But I think they can still get Millsap. Yeah, who I think would be a great fit Yeah, I think Millsap would be a great fit. And do they want to get another 35-year-old to add to what's otherwise a pretty young roster? I mean, maybe just because they've, given themselves this two-year window now with Chris Paul, they don't mind that, but they could also maybe aim. I mean, maybe, I don't know, actually, I don't know if the mid-level is enough for them to get Jeremy Grant. It um, might be, and I think that would be a great fit. Yeah. Because uh, he, he brings a little more offensive pop than I think Millsap does anymore without really sacrificing much of the defensive upside Millsap brings. Yeah, and I think at this point, he's maybe a little bit more versatile defensively 100%. than Millsap. Like Millsap still, to me, is probably like a better team defender a smarter defender but as far as just being sort of multi-positional i think grant would be better but i don't know that that's necessarily even worth talking about because i don't think they're going to be able to get 
him at the mid-level. But I think generally they might look to go a little bit younger and maybe they don't even go after one player with that MLE, right? Like they could spread it around. I like the idea of Millsap because I think that their front court defense could use a shot in the arm. But I'm also a little concerned about their backcourt depth because look at the guards they have coming off the bench. It's Campaign, who looked great in the bubble, but the you know five years of evidence before that eight-game sample size tells a much different story. And then it's Elia Kobo and Javon Carter. Like, I don't mind Javon Carter. Javon Carter's nice as like a yeah fourth guard who like he's a solid defender, great ball pressure, but doesn't give you very much at all offensively. And I don't think is somebody you want playing more than like 15 minutes a game could be really good in that role. But I just think, I don't know if those three guys is, is uh, enough backcourt depth to make you feel confident as a team that's going to try and compete in the Western conference playoff picture. Going back to the deal itself, it's an absolute no brainer, like, absolute no-brainer Kelly Oubre is a nice player has turned himself into a a really solid like three and almost D type player but anyone who has watched the NBA for even half a season should understand that there are haves and have-nots in this league and there are stars and there are everybody else Kelly Oubre is a nice player he is not anywhere near the caliber of player that makes you hesitate trading him for Chris friggin Paul. I don't care how old Chris Paul is, right? Like, yeah, his age is concerning, but the Suns didn't trade for him with three years left on his contract. It's two years probably. And I think that's fine for a team, as you mentioned, that in addition to just wanting to be better, needs the kind of everything that Chris Paul brings to the table from a leadership and culture and just like presence standpoint, right? They haven't had in a decade since Nash left. So I think this is an absolute no-brainer. I think the Suns are a lot better than they were yesterday. I said on the last pod that I think trading for Chris Paul, especially without giving up Bridges, and now you can plug Paul into a lineup with Booker, Bridges, Aiton, and yeah, I guess Cam Johnson too. Like that, Barring injury, that's a Western Conference playoff team. And I'm, I'm sold on that, which it they seems also have the insane. number 10- yeah, they had the number 10 pick in the draft too, right? With yeah, and that's the thing too. Like, to maybe nab a, nab a wing to replace Ubre, essentially. To give up only a top 12 protected pick two years from now, in addition to not giving up really any foundational pieces, again, no disrespect to Ubre. Like, I, I can't stress enough how much of a no brainer this is for a team that can get better today, compete for a playoff spot, and maybe even a little more in the short term without really negatively impacting their still promising long-term outlook whatsoever. Complete no-brainer, and I'm super excited to watch this team. Yeah, and I think, you know, look, going back to what I said earlier, I really just think that the kind of overriding factor in all this is just keeping Devin Booker happy. And this is a guy who said two years ago that he was tired of missing the playoffs, and then the Suns went and missed the playoffs two more years in a row. And I think they really owed it to him, especially after that inspired push in Orlando and how close they came this year and how well he played. I mean, God, he was transcendent for that eight-game stretch and and really throughout last season. I mean, I thought, I've said this before, I thought he was a top 20 player in the league last year. He was stupid efficient, like close to 62% true shooting, 55% from two-point range, which for a high-usage guard is pretty wild. And he jacked his free throw rate up. And the really important thing to me is, like, for the longest time, they didn't have a competent point guard, right? And they get Rubio in, and that allows Booker to move off ball. And he was so good playing off of the ball last year, right? Like, I think he was 95th percentile in scoring efficiency off cuts. Um, They used him a little bit in the post. Obviously, as a spot-up shooter, he was great. I think he moves well and relocates well without the ball. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of staggering going on, which is the right approach. Like, you can have one of him or CP on the floor at all times, but them playing together, man, like I think they're going to make each other's lives really easy because they can both play obviously spectacularly well with the ball or without the ball. I mentioned this in my piece, but like Chris Paul last year as a pick and roll ball handler through shots and assists combined created 1.11 points per possession, which is insane. Uh, And Booker was like, not too far behind him. I think it was like at 1.01. So the idea of like those two guys essentially being able to kind of flow from one pick and roll to the next 
and serve as pressure releases for each other in the half court. Like to me, this team, especially with Aiton's development and how good he can be, I think as a finisher, like this team has top five offensive potential and the defensive side of the ball is maybe a bit more of a question, but I think we haven't seen a ton of slippage from CP at the defensive end, right? Like he's not quite the all NBA caliber guy he was in his prime, but like, so much of what makes him good at that end is still there, right? Obviously the intelligence, his instincts as a help defender, his hands are incredible. He's still super strong. And I think the fact that he can basically guard either, either guard spot will just provide cover for Booker, right? If there's a matchup where Booker doesn't necessarily feel comfortable, then Chris Paul can easily slide up a position and guard whoever he needs to guard, I think on the perimeter. So I think it's a good fit at both ends of the floor and I guess, yeah, from there, we can maybe just take some educated stabs at how good we think they can actually be uh, relative to their competition in the West. The two LA teams and the Nuggets, who I think have earned more than our respect, should once again, I think, be the top three. Aside from that, I think the Suns can finish as high as fourth. So I have the Warriors. Oh, right. Yeah, fuck. <laughs> I, I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility, man. I think it's out of the realm of possibility. <sighs> they... Man, the Warriors, like, I, I don't doubt their upside, but I think there's quite a bit of downside there, too, where, you know, we don't really know what Clay is going to look like. I mean, Steph is 32, and he's coming off an injury also, and Draymond, look, I, I don't doubt that Draymond will look better this year with the added motivation of actually playing for a competitive team, but, man, he, was, he wasn't great last year. And I then, think the Warriors will finish ahead of one of the LA teams in the regular season standings. Oh man, I, I think that's crazy. I think the Warriors will be a top two or three seed. Where's their depth though? You, you have Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, I think a rejuvenated Draymond. <laughs> Whatever they get with the number two pick. How much depth do you need when you have that? I think given the ages of those guys, you actually do need quite a bit. If Steph and Clay are healthy and they have Draymond and they find a way to for Wiggins to even be a semi-competent third offensive option, which is very possible. I don't see any way a Phoenix team that I'm on record as saying I believe in finishes ahead of them in the standings. And given the amount the two LA teams will be resting guys in this condensed season, I think the Warriors regular season, at least leapfrog one of the LA teams, definitely finish ahead of the Suns and honestly, maybe finish ahead of the Nuggets. Well, maybe not the Nuggets because the Nuggets seem like perfectly suited for regular season domination, but yeah, uh, so I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm I don't pencil the Suns in fifth. Okay. Although I had a Dallas. Porzingis isn't going to be ready for the start of the year. And I know it, they're saying he might be ready like by the second or third week of the season, but still like there's some questions there. I want to see what they do this off season. Portland, who we can talk about for a couple minutes because they got Covington. I think yeah. look, the Covington deal, we can talk about it. It's going to be good. But the last thing I'll say about Phoenix is I'm excited to see Booker in a competitive environment and it'll be Nice to see a lot of people eat crow on their Booker takes because, look, I ate crow two years ago because I, I was never the biggest Booker believer. And two years ago, I did become a Booker believer just watching him and seeing the developments he was making to his game on a Suns team that was still trash. If you remember, two years ago is when I wrote that piece where it was like, the Suns are still terrible, but don't you dare blame Devin Booker because I thought incrementally he was taking the steps necessary to show that he actually was a star caliber player. And people would see it if they just surrounded him with a competent point guard with some defensive problem solvers. And they started to do that this past season. And it still didn't result in a playoff spot, but it resulted in a clear step forward for the franchise. And now they've got Chris Paul alongside. Him. And so, yeah, I'm just excited for more people to eat the same crow I ate when it comes to Booker two years ago. Yeah, well, I'm, I don't even know how many Booker skeptics are really left out there. Like, I, I think that most people, especially after his performance in the bubble, uh, has made converts out of most of the intelligent basketball watching public. And I don't think it's really even a question of eating crow because he got way better, you know? And, and I think he he rounded out his game uh, in ways that made him like a more effective player and a legitimate star. I think his his defensive effort still does leave something to be desired, but he grew as a playmaker. Uh, he expanded his off-ball capabilities um i think you know he's proven to be a, a legitimately great teammate and somebody that i think you can absolutely build an elite offense around so 
I mean, I guess you could say you'd eat crow if you never believed that he could get to this level. But I think the player that he turned into is what allowed the Suns to make this move and have confidence that they could pay off in terms of a playoff berth and maybe even a series win. I agree. I put them definitely a notch be- below the LA teams and the Nuggets. Probably put them a notch below the Warriors, at least as far as you know, being a playoff team. I think in the regular season, it is possible that they could wind up with a better record. But you know, beyond those four teams and maybe Dallas at full strength, I think they're right there with you know the rest of the conference in the mix with the Blazers and the Jazz. And I mean, obviously, like we're, this, we're already you know, at eighteen. <laughs> Yeah, the the West is nuts. Um, and then, you know, the Rockets, obviously, they're going to be well out of this picture if they do end up trading Harden. If they wind up hanging on to him, then there's no reason that the Rockets won't also be in that mix. So, you know, as much as this, to me, makes the Suns look like a surefire playoff team on paper, you start looking through, you know, the, the gauntlet in the Western Conference, and it's, it starts to look like not so much of a, of a sure thing. Well, in the new scheduling format, they might have eight wins banked already against Sacramento. So um, that's a story. Yeah, eight, wing, eight wins banked against Sacramento, but then 24 you know, games. 24 against, other games against the Clippers, Warriors. And like, so yeah. by the way, is that confirmed? That it's not yet. We still, we still don't know 30. for sure the scheduling details. That was just the most reported possibility. I mean, that might be what decides, honestly, whether the Suns make the playoffs or not, because 24 games against the Warriors and the two LA teams is no freaking joke. Did you want to hit on the Blazers quickly? Because I, I really like that Covington addition for them. As much as I think the price was a little bit steep, like he is exactly what they need. 100%. Look, I mean, you talk about defensive problem solvers when it comes to Phoenix. The Blazers just found one of the best defensive problem solvers in the league. And I really mean that when it comes to Robert Covington, an absolutely versatile defender who can lock down on the perimeter, but also, as we saw in Houston, be a different type of rim protector. Yes, rim protector, even at his size. Yeah, I love the addition from a talent and versatility and defensive standpoint. A guy who can obviously still shoot the ball too. I think that's exactly what Portland needed and exactly what the backcourt of Dame and CJ needed. I obviously, you know, they have a long way to go to construct a good defense. But you know, with Covington and Nurkic on the court for chunks of the game, I think they're at least on the pathway there. You mentioned the price. Like, I don't, I don't want to quibble too much over the price because at the end of the day, a good team got better. But more so than saying Portland overpaid, I just wanted to point out the fact that, like, I guess my perception and value of first rounders and trades is now out of whack and warped because for the longest time i think i undervalued what the value of first rounders would be in trades and then you'd see a guy you know like a a middling starter or even like someone like a covington and you'd hear about how like you know first rounders are too steep and and then we'd be talking about one first rounder and now we're at a point where like covington's fetching two first rounders drew holiday just fetched friggin five well, I don't know what Drew Holiday didn't fetch. He fetched three and, and swap rights on two others. That's still that's still five though, control wise. You gave up control of five first round picks. I suppose, but you I, know, that, I, that's what they did. They gave up control of five first round picks. Like, yes, two of them will be swapped, so they they still have first round picks. They're just going to be inferior picks, but they mm-hmm. gave up control of five picks. My perception well, think, now of trade value with first rounders has been completely warped because even like the it's Covington- fluid. It's fluid. Like first rounders mean different things to different teams. Obviously, you know the the Bucks imperative is to be as good as they can possibly be right now, and you know the first rounders in twenty twenty five and twenty twenty seven are just frankly not really important. Like what's important right now is you need to keep Giannis. You need to try and maximize this championship window, and we'll deal with you know those outgoing first rounders in five years, but I think you can basically say that the Blazers are sort of in the same spot, right? Like they don't have as much pressure on them and they're not as much of a sort of championship contender as the Bucks are, but like they're also trying to maximize the prime of a superstar who is, I mean, he's obviously quite a bit older than Giannis. Dame's 30 right now. So like what, what better time than now for the Blazers, right? And, and I really think if they have a full, like, healthy season of Nurkic the the thing that they were really missing last year was obviously they were missing Nurkic's defense at the center position but they were just really thin on wing defenders and like Covington just gives them that in spades and he gives them that while also providing you know pretty high level spot up shooting doesn't need the ball in his hands to be successful offensively can spot up around 
Dame Nurkic pick and rolls and essentially take on like the toughest perimeter assignments every night, be a great team defender for them. Man, I'm, I'm inclined to say that they might be closer actually to that top tier in the West than any other team. Do you think that's crazy? Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe not. I mean, they were a conference finalist two years ago. Like, I guess it's not crazy. Yeah, I I guess, mean, they, they were I guess, a conference finalist without Nurkic. Right. Like, Nurkic missed that entire playoff run. I don't, I don't think it's crazy, but I think the fact that it might be crazy speaks more to the fact the West is insane than it does to the fact that the Blazers are deficient. You know what I mean? So, okay. So, so let's say that the top tier in the West is the two LA teams. The next tier is like Nuggets Warriors. That's kind of how I would handicap it. You, you really don't think the Warriors are in that top tier? Assuming they say, I, I think, no, I think they could be. I just think that I, I have so many questions about them right now that I, it's, it's more of like a certainty thing. Whereas like, I'm, I feel pretty certain about the Lakers and the Clippers as far as, you know, the quality of those teams. I think the upside of the Warriors is absolutely to be in that tier. But I, I think I'd need to see it before I actually believe it. So for now, I would put them a notch below in a tier with the Nuggets. But beyond those four teams, who who do you think is closer than the Blazers? I mean, I, I guess maybe you could say Dallas at full at full strength. At full strength, yeah. But the Porzingis stuff really does worry me. As it should. Like, this is a, a career-long trend now. Yeah. And, man, how many times have we seen where, like, a lingering thing that kind of it just delays the start of a guy's season. Just it ends up with that guy never really being right, you know, that season. And I, obviously, I don't want to assume that. Like we haven't read the medical reports, but again, it just it concerns me when it's also been a career long trend. I, I guess Portland's the answer. Yeah, I'm all I, the way out on Utah. <laughs> yeah. Well, which I shouldn't be. I mean, that's a good team. Really good. And the way we're talking about them, they're like an eight seed. They may very well be in this conference. Yeah. No. I mean the the. Eighth seed in the West this year could very well. We've seen this happen in the past where the eighth seed is like a 50 win team. And I think we might be headed for that type of a season. I, I guess it's a 72 game season, so they wouldn't be a 50 win team. But what would be, be like a the equivalent of a 44 win team? Yeah. So, okay. The Kings are going to be trash. The Timberwolves, even with the number one pick, I, I'm they're not going to be good. Sorry. The Spurs are going to be trash. I don't so think like, the Grizzlies are making the playoffs. Yeah, the, the Grizzlies will probably take a step back, if anything. The Pelicans, yeah. without Drew especially now, like I think David Griffin is smart enough to realize it's not time to strike. The iron is not hot right now for that team. They're probably going to need another year, at least in the lottery. So that's, who, who are we left with now? That's already five teams we've decided are not playoff teams. Oh, oh OKC is not going to be a playoff team. Mm-hmm. That's six. Who- Man, here's the thing. Yo, if OKC doesn't like flip Rubio keeps Danny Green like I think they ultimately they'll try and flip those guys before the trade deadline anyway like even if they're in the mix yeah so I do think ultimately they won't be but I think if they were just to go into next season with that roster they could still be pretty damn good losing Gallo would hurt though yeah man. They're, they're they're a little light on shooting I think they're done and they seem just so committed annoyingly enough that they're overcommitted to just tearing everything down regardless I'm curious what they do with Ubre. Yeah, he's only twenty four, man, and like, and like I said, he's turned himself into a solid player. And isn't that like the exact prototype of a player that Sam Presti has like been trying to draft? Yeah, every year for the last five years, yeah. like the except he can actually game. shoot. <laughs> well, sort of. He he's he's gotten himself to like league average. Yeah, which is would be an absolute fever dream for most of the guys Presti's drafted. Yeah, I feel like he is what, you know, Presti wanted Terrence Ferguson to be. You talked about the even the eighth place team having 50 wins. I think this might be the year where instead of there being this fervent race for the last spots in the West, there's just the eight playoff teams and they're very established early in the season and the seven have nots. Because if you really look at it, the amount of smoke that's now going around this Harden stuff, I find it hard to believe he's starting the season in Houston. And if that's the case, I'm ruling them out as a playoff team. Yeah. So we're going Houston's out. Uh, we've already said we think Memphis takes a step back and is out. The Spurs, I think, are going to be bad. The Kings are going to be terrible. The Pelicans, we just said, we think they've accepted they're probably not jumping into the playoff mix this year. The Timberwolves are still going to be bad. The Thunder are not making the playoffs without Paul and Gallo. So that leaves just the eight teams we think are going to make the playoffs. The two LA teams, Denver, Utah, probably I, I might be the eight seed, Dallas, Portland, Phoenix, and Golden State. That's eight teams right there. I think the, the Western Conference playoff race, barring injury 
which is stupid to say five weeks before the season starts, might just already be settled. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't go that far because I do still, I, I do still think, you know, we should let the season be played. <laughs> no, 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 yeah, but I, I think it, it's possible that the Grizzlies will be in that mix, right? They're a great candidate for just internal improvement, and I think you could sort of say the same about the Pelicans. Like, as much as losing Drew is going to hurt, I think if they can get a full season out of Zion and you know another year of development for Ingram and who knows with Lonzo he's like one of the hardest players in the league to peg I find but I don't think it's like totally out of the realm of possibility that those two teams are at least in the mix and then the Spurs have just like any number of different directions that they can go and I think one of those directions could lead them to being a pretty competitive team as well but I do think right now uh, you're right. There does seem to be a, a relatively clear line of demarcation between the top eight and the rest, pending what happens in Houston. Which, you know, I guess you could take that Covington trade as a sign that they because, re- like, they're done, man. Do you think? Do you think that there's a justification for them making that deal if they were still planning on keeping Harden because they get Ariza back, who and they and some draft capital which they needed two first rounders, yep. which yeah, their asset cupboard was totally bare. So. Ariza to me can, you know, approximate maybe like 70% of what Covington gives them. Maybe that's being generous given. I, th- I think that's pretty age, fair. Like, I think that's pretty fair. So, and, so you get, and they like, get badly needed, desperately needed draft capital. Yeah. So I, I actually think, I don't know that, you know, in a vacuum, you just look at that trade and you're like, oh, that, that means that Harden's gone. I, I think there's a way that you could justify it, even if he's sticking around. But certainly uh, the writing seems to be on the wall there. So, yeah. Given the way this week has already gone and the, the hardened rumors that are out there, I'm going to assume we will be back sooner rather than later. I mean, we already plan to do multiple pods this week, but I don't even think we're going to be waiting until the end of the week to do another one. So whether it's shortly after the draft, whether it's after a hardened trade, or whether it's maybe around the time free agency starts, we will be back at some point this week, at least one more time. In the meantime, fan shout out this week, actually not as much of a regular fan shout out as it is... Uh, I guess a friend shout out, former coworker, current friend, Alex Wong. And I'm shouting him out because on the real, this guy is the biggest Pound the Rock supporter. Posts literally, and I'm not exaggerating, literally every single Pound the Rock episode in his Instagram stories. Alex Wong straight up shares and promotes Pound the Rock more than I do, which is uh, which is saying something. So this week's fan shout out is a bit of a fake one because... Uh, it's someone in the industry, but still a shout out Alex Wong. And we will get back to a regular fan shout out on our next episode. I've already even got a couple lined up. So Also, I should say that uh, our, our fan shout out from last week, I have to apologize to Nimrit, whose name I butchered. He finally got around to responding to my DM. Uh, and I realized that Nimrit was not the correct pronunciation. So Nimrit, I'm sorry, but at least I got his place of residence correct. Shout out to Edmonton, and uh, that's it. All right. Just a reminder, anyone listening to the show, let us know what you think, where you're listening from, and we will try to shout you out on a future episode of Pound the Rock because we appreciate all our listeners, whether you're posting every episode in your Instagram story or not. For Joe Wolfon, Joseph Cacharo, Pound the Rock.